because people ask me a lot of questions over lunch. <laughs> uh, there were one. There was one set of two questions that I thought might be very appropriate to address, but I don't. And I so I'm going to answer those questions first, but uh, I don't necessarily want them to set the tone for the rest of your questions, just create the foundation for the rest of your questions. So those first two questions that I want to address, one was, what is meditation? And the second question was, is, uh, how, how does meditation uh, help? How does meditation contribute to uh, achieving awakening. Was that the right version? Second question. Okay. I thought they were. I thought they were good questions. <clears throat> uh, not because uh, uh, everybody, nobody here knows what meditation is. Because even those people who are meditating uh, might like to have a clear definition of what meditation is. So I'll tell you what meditation is as far as. I, the way that I see it. Meditation is training the mind. Meditation is training the mind specifically in uh, terms of attention and awareness. These two things. It's training attention and training awareness. And then there are a number of interesting outcomes of successfully training the mind in that way. So in terms of what meditation is, what you discovered when you, when you sat earlier today, or any time you sat, is, uh, uh, and try to keep your attention on one thing, is the attention tends to move constantly. So we want to, so in meditation, one of the first things we're training is the attention to achieve some stability of the attention, so that the attention stops its constant movement. Now, this is one of, well, we're, we're training attention and awareness, and that's because this happens to be uh, two things that we have some direct voluntary control over that our mind does. Um, and in the process of meditating, you'll discover that a whole lot of things that you thought you had control over, you don't. But we can control our attention right now. You can move your attention wherever you want. You can direct your attention to the sensations in uh, your right ankle. And you can direct your attention to sounds. And you can direct your attention to thoughts and feelings and things like that. You can intentionally direct your attention. But normally what happens is your attention is moving all over the place. And uh, in terms of what you can do with your mind, until you can rein the attention in and keep the attention, steady the attention, stabilize the attention, you're somewhat limited in what you can do. And you all know this is true as students in school. You found that until you gain some control over the movements of your attention, you can never possibly make it through the reading assignment in algebra, for example, or anything else. So we can control attention, and uh, we have the capacity to control attention, and 
stability of attention is essential for using the mind effectively. So this is one thing that we do in meditation. The other thing is that we have the capability to uh, train awareness, our conscious awareness. And the degree to which our awareness is, is conscious is quite variable. You know what it's like when you're tired, your mind is dull, and you're sleepy. You do not have very sharp, clear, vivid awareness of things in, a, in that particular state. On the other hand, there are other states of mind that you can enter into where it's just the opposite. Your mind is extremely sharp and clear and, you, and everything appears with great degree of vividness. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the things that we were talking about over the break is athletes uh, that get into the zone where they uh, are very, uh, very extremely aware of you know, a very, very high level of conscious awareness. So conscious awareness exists over a great... Oh, it's breaking <laughs> Over a great range. We can put that back up again. It, it exists over a great range. And it's, it's trainable. And so meditation is a process where we learn to stabilize the mind and we, we learn to raise the level of our conscious awareness. It makes the mind very serviceable, very useful for the uh, uh, spiritual goals that we have, especially when the spiritual goals are put in the terms of discovering the true nature of reality, obtaining insight into the way things really are. So just as a simple comparison, <clears throat> um, we're looking for a treasure. The way things really are is a treasure. And our your mind is like a flashlight. And if you're searching in the dark and you keep moving the light around like this, it's very hard to see anything, right? Very hard to find what you're looking for. If you stabilize your attention, you can shine it on one thing long enough to say, oh, nope, that's not what I'm looking for. You know, and you can, you can begin to examine things and find what you're looking for. And awareness is like how bright that flashlight is. So generally we start off with a not too bright flashlight, but as we train ourselves in awareness, it's like making an extremely powerful light. And so this is what contributes us, uh, contributes to the, uh, the search that we have for the way things really are, to see beyond our delusion, uh, to gain insight. So, we can define meditation in terms of training the attention and training the awareness. <clears throat> now there's some very interesting consequences that come from this. The other thing that you will have noticed uh, is that not only is your attention constantly moving around, your, your mind is filled with all kinds of activities. You're hearing sounds and feeling things and thoughts are coming and uh, it's just this continuous uh, barrage of sensory 
uh, information and of mental contents. And it just seemed to go on endlessly. And the other thing that you'll notice, you say, okay, I'm going to sit here and focus his attention on my breath of the nose. <clears throat> and, well, that's one part of your mind that wants to do that, that's maybe read a book, listened to a talk, been inspired and says, oh, learning and meditate's a good thing. But some other part of your mind says, no, why don't we go have a nap instead? And another one says, no, 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 let's go for a walk and visit our friend, so-and-so, and so on. So the point is that you discover that your mind is not one thing, it's all these different things, and they don't agree on what's the best thing to be doing to make you happy in a particular moment. As a matter of fact, you sit there and you wonder, where do all these thoughts come from? I sit down here to meditate, and all of a sudden I remember all the things that I was supposed to do this week that I didn't do. Where did that come from? Um, I remember things that happened a long time ago that don't have anything to do with what's going on right now. Or I have, I run things through my mind that happened yesterday that I don't really need to run through in my mind. They're not important. They don't matter. Or I worry about things that might happen. So forth. <clears throat> if you if you meditate and if you observe your mind, this is what you observe: is that your mind is not one thing; it's all of these different mental processes, and they're going different directions. They all have different goals and objectives. <clears throat> and it may be that one part of your mind wants to learn to meditate, but there's a whole lot of other parts of your mind that have totally different ideas about, you know, how the present moment should best be spent. Like herding cats, right? Learning to meditate is like herding cats. Every cat wants to go somewhere different. They don't want to go where you're sending them. But the mind is trainable. And what we find is if <clears throat> if we can get the attention to stay on one thing, the attention is what we have control over. You don't have control over all those different thoughts. You can't make them stop. You can't make them come. They come by themselves. Or they don't come by themselves. And if you examine your sensory awareness, in any given moment, there is an uncountable number of physical sensations. There are all kinds of different sounds. Yet when you're sitting there in meditation, hearing certain sounds and feeling certain sensations, you're not hearing and feeling all in all of them. It's just certain ones that come through. But still, it's a lot. Well, the interesting thing that happens, if you take the one thing that you control is your attention. And you learn to stabilize your attention, so your attention stops jumping all around. Then that means that a lot of the thoughts that come and go, they're in the background of your awareness, and so they're, they may not be completely ignored, but they're mostly ignored. And thoughts that are ignored tend to go away. And if you ignore them long enough, they stop coming. And sounds, if you ignore if you're paying attention to the sensations of your breath and you ignore sounds of every kind long enough, after a while, uh, very few sounds make it through to your conscious awareness. You notice you have a, a zillion sensations coming from your body 
and only certain ones make it through. And if you consistently ignore the sensations that do come through, after a while, fewer and fewer sensations come through. This is called unification of the mind, and it's one of the results that come from stabilizing your attention. <clears throat> it's called unification because when you experience it, you begin to realize no longer are these different parts of your mind busy thinking about and remembering all these different things at the same time, that now all the different parts of your mind are starting to settle down and be engaged in the same activity. And you find that the parts of your mind that filtered out uh, and only allowed some sounds and some bodily sensations, they are now, they, they're getting with the program as well. They're saying, well, the sound of the traffic has nothing to do with what we're doing right now, so I'm going to filter it out too. The sound of the person coughing next to me. you know. So you come to the point where now there's very little extraneous activity going on in your mind. You've been training your awareness, and now you find that the power of your awareness is very great because it's not distributed over all of these different things that were coming up, these different sensations and different thoughts and memories and so forth. So one of the outcomes of training attention and awareness is that you get this unification of the mind. So your mind starts functioning as a synchronized, coherent, harmonious whole rather than as a herd of cats. It's more, more like a troop of synchronized dancers rather than a herd of cats. Right? So that, that's an outcome. That's not something that you can make happen, but if you train your attention and you stabilize the attention, that creates the conditions so that this will happen. Now you have a very powerful mind. It's also a very still and calm mind. It's a peaceful mind. And the other thing that happens, it's also a happy mind. As a matter of fact, it may be more than happy, it may be exhilaratingly joyful. Sometimes that happens as well. And this is similar to something that we experience in our daily lives. Do you notice that when you become completely engrossed in something, so that all of your attention is devoted to the same thing, that you feel very contented and happy, you enjoy it. That's why we have certain hobbies, we engage, we like to get just totally engaged in something that we enjoy. It makes us feel really good. It's the same thing happens in meditation. When your mind, when you get this unification of mind, it produces a state of happiness, joy, peace, contentment. So these are the outcomes. The unified mind, uh, peace, joy, happiness, contentment. And of course, from the development of awareness comes a great clarity. Whatever you happen to pay attention to, you perceive it with great clarity. So that's what meditation is training your mind. And there's many different meditation methods, but all of those that are really successful, that really work, do that. They stabilize your attention, and they develop the power of your mind for awareness. They lead to a unification of mind. And if a med meditation method doesn't lead to unification of mind, you're never going to have the full power of your mental resources 
available in the present moment because your mind's going to be divided. Uh, and also produces the, the joy, peace, happiness, contentment. And this by itself is a benefit. Joy is a, a good thing to have. Uh, one of the sutta excerpts I gave you uh, is called the uh, Titi Sutta, or the Rapture Sutta. When the mind becomes imbued with pleasure, joy, happiness, uh, and if you're a skilled meditator, when you get up from meditating, it still retains that state of pleasure, joy, happiness. Rapture is, in this translation, rapture is the word that's used to describe that. And it says, when a disciple of the noble ones, this is page nine, when a disciple of the noble ones enters and remains in seclusion and rapture, the seclusion is that of meditation. There are five possibilities that do not exist at that time. The pain and stress dependent on sensuality do not exist at that time. The pleasure and joy dependent on sensuality do not exist at that time. And that's important because it's the pleasure and joy dependent upon sensuality that gives rise to craving. The pain and distress dependent on the unskillful do not exist at that time. Likewise, the pleasure and joy dependent on what is unskillful do not exist at that time. The pain and distress dependent upon what is skillful do not exist at that time. When a disciple of the noble one enters and remains in seclusion and rapture, these five possibilities do not exist. When you meditate and when you develop your meditation to the point that you have this unification of mind, you experience this joy and rapture in meditation, when you get up from meditation, you will carry these qualities with you. Your mind will remain joyful, happy, contented. And you can carry out the other practices that we're going to talk about, some of which we have talked about, because you are not so vulnerable as you normally are to, uh, to both the pleasures and the pains that come from outside of yourself, because you have the joy, contentment, happiness that is generated from inside yourself. So that is one way that meditation contributes to uh, the other practices that lead to awakening. By developing attentional stability, this is part of what allows you to be able to practice mindfulness successfully in your daily life. It's not an accident that all the people that we heard from that have been meditating quite a few hours a day, every day for a long time, are the same ones that are able to practice mindfulness very easily in much of their daily life. Because the two are connected. What, the way you train your mind in, uh, in meditation affects the way your mind works in your daily life and the degree to which that you can be mindful. And it works the other way as well, too. In a way, if you meditate for an hour, if you divide your daily life into meditation and make it completely separate from what you do the rest of the time, then what you'll find, you meditate for an hour, you get to a pretty good state, and then you go off and for the next 23 hours, 
your mind just, all of the training that you did just goes bluey, right? So you come back and you sit down again and it's, you know, you've got a long way to go. Uh, maybe if you're lucky, by the end of the hour you kind of get into a good place again. But if you don't make the two so separate, if you end your meditation you continue to practice mindful awareness and if you continue to sustain some of these qualities you've trained yourself in, then when you sit down to meditate again, it's going to be, you're, you're going to very quickly get back to the same place that you were before. Meditation reinforces the other practices in many different ways. And doing the other practices will help to reinforce and improve the quality of your meditation. How does this contribute to achieving the, uh, the ultimate goal of awakening? The ultimate goal of awakening is to awaken from the illusion that our minds create, the, the, the illusion, the delusion that I spoke of earlier. To penetrate that delusion, we need to have a clear, powerful mind. And we need to apply that clear, powerful mind to examining experience as it happens, to examining reality as it unfolds moment by moment. If we can examine reality as it unfolds moment by moment, its true nature will reveal itself to us. One important thing to notice about this, there is no, no element of faith required. There's nothing to believe, no doctrine. Anything that I or any other Dharma teacher might tell you about in advance about what you're going to discover will not change what you discover if you apply the mind trained in meditation to observing reality. Now, it may speed up the process because it will help you know what to look for. But if you train your mind in clarity and focus and you examine reality as it unfolds moment by moment, you are going to discover things about reality. So you're going to discover what really is the way it is, not, not some view that, you, that somebody has convinced you of or persuaded you of, or that you've become attached to because it's, it, it sounds really nice. You're going to discover the way things really are. The only thing that you have to take on confidence is that the method will work, that if you practice it, it will lead to this result. And that what you will discover Although when I tell you what it is, you may, it may not sound very attractive, you'll discover that yourself is an illusion and the world the way you perceive it is an illusion. But you will come to know things as they really are and that will liberate you from your suffering. That when you come to know that, it will produce a change in the way that your mind works. And your mind will keep on doing its thing, but it's going to do its thing in a different way. You're going to have an awakened mind, an enlightened mind, and you're going to be a person whose happiness is not dependent upon external circumstances. You're going to have you're going to have wisdom, and because of the wisdom, so wisdom is the opposite of delusion. You're going to have wisdom because of the wisdom 
you're going to have an end to suffering. So that's the only thing that you need to have, not faith in, but confidence in, is that for 2,500 years that people have been doing this successfully and that it, it does work. Does that answer your two questions? Thank you. All right. Next question. Uh, I noticed in the sutta, uh, yes. the Buddha talks about five possibilities. Yes. And so the sixth possibility is not in here, right? For a good reason. Uh, good point. Yes. And the sixth possibility is. That's pleasure and joy, dependent on uh, what is skillful. Yes, that's right. And that's rapture, right? Is, is that yes. That's right. That's the pleasure and joy dependent upon what is skillful. That's the pleasure and joy that arises from within and is not dependent upon external circumstances. Yes? Yeah. I have a question. Um, when I try to practice on the daily life, uh, uh, I have uh, some discoveries that when, when you're doing some simple things, it's easy to keep it your awareness and mindfulness, but when something needs your more brain processing, you need more brain power to, to yeah. process it, more complicated situation, then you're gonna lose your your mindfulness. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So what should I what should what's the solution? Okay, well this is a very important point. I mean what it says to you first of all, really clearly uh, oh the question oh repeat the question. Yes, thank you. We'll do this for the sake of the recording. Uh, Jesse's observation was that when he's doing something simple, it's easy to be mindful. But when you do something that requires more of your mind or of your brain, that you lose the mindfulness. Or, you know, it's not necessarily that you're doing something that requires more. I mean, that's certainly true of that. But it also happens when something comes up that overwhelms your mind with emotion or, or other things like that. But what this, the important thing that this points out to you is that you have a limited capacity for conscious awareness. You've only got so much, and when it's completely filled with something, there's none left over, right? Yes? But the capacity can be enhanced, is it? Exactly. The capacity can be enhanced. The other thing, it can be enhanced, the other thing that you come to be able to do is to set aside a certain amount of limited capacity. Uh, and now, it depends on what you're doing. If you're, if you're dismantling a bomb, you don't want to set aside any of your capacity for, for reflecting on your mental state or anything, right? You want all of your total awareness. If you're flying a jet aircraft at, at uh, 600 miles per hour, you know, uh, you want to be. You want to use all of your mental capacity for the task at hand. But when you're having a discussion with a friend over coffee, it may be difficult. But you can learn to reserve some of your capacity for conscious awareness for for practicing this sort of mindfulness. But you have to train yourself to do that. And you have to do it, and, and it, doing it in simple situations will make it easier to do it in the more complicated situations. Uh, 
you have to remember to do it and you have to train yourself to be able to do it. In your meditation, the more you enhance your capacity for mindful awareness, the easier it will be. Easier it will be. The other thing that we learn to do in meditation, though, in cultivating awareness, is to cultivate introspective awareness. So, uh, when you're meditating on the sensation of the breath at your nose, to begin with, it's a struggle to pay attention to that with everything else that's going on in your mind. As you start to have more stability in your attention, then it's at that point that you can start to expand your awareness. And you can start to be in that place of having introspective awareness that, yes, my mind is still observing the meditation object clearly. Or my mind's becoming a little bit dull and fuzzy. I can sharpen up my awareness. I feel my awareness being drawn towards this distraction or that distraction. You start to cultivate introspective awareness. And as the power of your mindful awareness increases, you get better and better at this until you get to the place where you're watching your mind watch the meditation object. And if you sit like that for an hour or two hours or three hours in a day, then when you get up, you get up and you watch your mind as your mind controls your body and walks you into the kitchen and pours yourself something to drink and makes a sandwich and so on and so forth. It gets to be natural to have that continuing introspective awareness. And of course the phone rings and somebody says, oh, there's this big problem I've got. You might start to lose your mindful awareness. But the more you practice in that way, the easier it is to retain some part of that mindful awareness or at least to come back to it. You know, like you talk your way through the situation, you hang up the phone, you come back into mindful awareness. It becomes more habitual and uh, e- much easier to do. But there's not, you know, it's, your question was, what can I, what can I do? What not is the solution? I mean, how, or how to uh, make practice to yes. expand the levels? Okay. The things that you can do are meditate so that you expand your capacity for mindful awareness. Practice as much as possible when things, when the situation that you're in doesn't require your entire awareness or doesn't overwhelm your mindfulness. Practice being continuously mindful. And those will help you to be able to be mindful. The other thing is that it's the same thing that we come back to earlier. It's like learning to meditate, is remembering to be mindful. Because you forget. And you have long periods of time when you could have oh, been no, mindful. But after the situation, I will, I will come back come back easy. You come back easy? Well, good. Yeah, yeah. but the situation I can, cannot handle. Yeah. But... This is the way that you come to the place of being able to handle it, is to just just keep keep practicing in that same way. The meditation is really important, but the mindful awareness all the time, remembering to have mindful awareness all the times that you can. Yeah, you'll have these gaps. As a matter of fact, once again, it's just like meditation. In the third stage of developing concentration, you stay with a meditation object for long periods of time, but there's these gaps. 
every now and then, you're gone. And so in that stage, your job is to patch the gaps. So what you're saying is where your mindful awareness is right now, you have gaps. So now you've got to work on patching those gaps. Yeah, so it's, in a, it's the same process. I have a second question also. Uh, when, I, when I watch my mind, and I have something uh, confusing, confusion, I, I don't know if you can explain to me. I want to know what the subconscious relative to the to the uh, sixth conscious and uh, the fourth upgrade. The four? Um, five, five, five upgrades. Oh, five aggregates. And the fourth is the, the mental formation. Eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's the what's the subconscious to relate here to the mental formation and uh, all the all the the eight conscious or the seven eight conscious? That's a technical question. Yeah, because I, I watch it, I, I saw something there, but I I cannot understand okay. all that process. <coughs> not not everyone here is familiar with uh, five aggregates, I think, and so. Let me put this in more general terms, all right? Um, there is a lot going on in your mind that is that of which you're not consciously aware. And that is what determines how you perceive things and your reactions to things, right? So this is what... This is the kind of mental activity that constitutes mental formations. It is all your stored conditioning from the past, your memories, what determines how your mind is going to respond in the present moment to whatever arises. <coughs> the response it's going to generate is going to be your current perception. So you are conscious of your perception. You're conscious, you may be conscious of the sensations of, of the forms that give rise to that perception. You're going to be conscious of your perception of what you're experiencing in the moment. You'll be conscious of your feelings of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral that's associated with what, what you're perceiving and, and the sensations that you're experiencing. But what you will be least conscious of are all of the subconscious processes that determine how you perceive, how you react, what kind of decision that you make, you know, uh, what that determine your actions and things like that. So, of the, of the five aggregates, this aggregate of mental formations is perhaps the most important <coughs> in terms of uh, what makes us uh, be what we are, and behave the way we are but it's the one that is least available to consciousness. Now, in your meditation and your practice of mindful awareness, you will begin to become more aware of this aggregate of mental formations. Or, to put into more ordinary language, you'll become more aware of all of the subconscious processes which are determining the kind of mental behavior uh, uh, and, of course, speech and, and the physical behavior that follow from that. But you become aware of what lies behind the mental activity that you are consciously aware of. More and more of that will become uh, apparent. Is that what you're referring to? 
that we started out today talking about is one of those ways for understanding how these things work. We have a perception and it causes a, it causes a feeling of unpleasantness, of, of dukkha. And without practice and without training, that's where it stops. We say, ah, oh, this thing makes me unhappy. But if you do the practice we talked about, you said, ah, dukkha, there must be craving. Craving is going to be, that's within the aggregate of mental formations. If you look into your mind to discover the craving that lies behind the dukkha, you will have begun to see into the aggregate of mental formations. If you, if you can see it clearly, and if you say to yourself, well, the teacher has told me that when craving arises, it is rooted and attachment to the, the, the self, the self-perception, then you can look into your mind as well. And if you can see the self-concept that lies behind that arising of craving, then you'll have seen even more deeply into the aggregate of mental formation. Now, in the process of doing that, you may become aware of some of the dynamics of your past conditioning. That when I grew up, uh, my parents treated me this way, teachers that way, and my situation at work. You can see some of the mental dynamics that, that feed this as well. And that too is all part of the aggregate of mental formation. It's part of the insight that we gain. Uh, uh, this, is, this is the sort of ordinary level of insight that comes through this practice as we begin to see the factors that have caused us to be the way we are you know, and different than the way other people are. But the degree that we see that uh, our experiences are based in craving and that that craving is founded on, on self-attachment, now this is, this is more than just mundane insight here. This is the more deeper and powerful insight. Yes, Chris. Hi. Uh, when you were uh, describing meditation earlier, you were using the words attention and awareness. And it, I think you, you used the same analogy with the flashlight, and, and you, you used the words concentration and mindfulness instead. And I was wondering, was that a deliberate uh, change of terms, or does it make any, you know, is there some different meaning? No. Uh, there's overlapping meanings, and so attention, concentration. Uh, when we say the word concentration, uh, of course that that implies attentional stability. You know, to concentrate on something is to have attentional stability on that thing. Okay. Uh, but concentration implies more than that as well. It, it also implies uh, not only the stability of the attention, which you can, you can think of the, the attention as being directional. Attention can be directed here, directed here, directed here. So attention is a movable 
uh, is a movable uh, component of our mind and it is uh, directable at, at, at will and uh, it's limited. Attention can be there, can be here and there at the same time. But then there's another aspect of our conscious awareness. You can focus your conscious awareness on the sensations of the breath of your nose, and that's the focus. That's you know, it's like uh, visually, you know, I can look at, I can look at this, but that doesn't mean it's the only thing that I see. I'm looking at it. I see it very clearly. But in my peripheral vision, I can also see quite a few other things. The degree to which uh, I pay attention to things in my peripheral vision is going to uh, diminish somewhat the clarity with which I see the object I'm looking directly at. And as a matter of fact, if I wanted to, to, to obtain the maximum visual information I could from the object, what I would need to do is to focus on it in such a way that I really excluded all the peripheral stuff from my awareness. And this is the way concentration is. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's what we mean by concentration. Not only is our attention stable, but we can also gather in the, yeah, the, uh, our conscious awareness to a single focal point. And so this is the aspect of concentration that goes beyond uh, the mere directional focus of attention. Did I make that clear? Well, I was just wondering why you used um, different terms. If there was, if there was a, a reason. Only that uh, the the only reason is that uh, I think the most important thing to understand. I was explaining what meditation is. And the most important thing to understand, I think, about meditation is that you want to control the one thing that you, that you can intentionally influence, which is the, how your attention is directed. If I said to you, which I have in the past, I've said meditation is about developing concentration. And what I've discovered is that concentration is too general a word. People think you know, like I say, when I use the example here of how concentration is different from attention, people think, okay, if I concentrate on the sensations of my breath and nose, it means I should have no thoughts. I should not be aware of the sound of the air conditioning or the traffic or somebody coughing. And so they try to suppress thoughts, and they try to suppress this other awareness. And that's actually counterproductive. That's, if you you can't suppress those things and if you try to you end up feeling very frustrated and restless and yeah I don't like this meditation stuff I'm going to go have a beer instead it's not more fun so <laughs> so I did intentionally say attention because I found that when I say concentration people assume that I mean that you're supposed to be able to block things out and you're not you're supposed, if you control where your attention goes then a lot of the noise in the mind will quiet down by itself. You can't make it quiet down. So I don't want to use a word that makes somebody inclined to think they're supposed to do that. Not there was a reason. Yeah. Yes, Michael. Um, the times that I have more difficulty 
maintaining my mindfulness usually is when uh, the thought is very, very engrossing and usually involves more craving or more aversion. And, and as we meditate, as we practice more and more naturally, uh, we don't get engrossed so easily with different kinds of thoughts. And, uh, and it's, it's the, it, it, is it, would, uh, did you see that as, uh, as a, one of the problems that uh, people lose their, their mindful awareness? You know, is that you know, they're so engrossed with some storylines, they're, they're yes. so involved in, in the story making, they're so part of that story. Yes, that's exactly what happened. They become too engrossed in in the story of whatever it is that they're uh, involved in in the moment, and and that is the and and you're right too in saying that the things that cause that to happen are the things that arouse the most craving. The more craving that you have, then the more completely engrossed you're going to become in in the story, in the content. And it, and you get so engrossed in the content that you lose your mindful awareness. And instead you're in a place of no mindful awareness and a lot of craving for however long that lasts. So. Similarly, you know, I, I observe people who are um, very engrossed in their story making and they're really, really angry. That's how people get really, really feel uh, angry, they feel justifiably so, because they believe the story to be you know, the ultimate truth, and they want to shoot somebody's head off. <laughs> yes, that's true. And, and that's one of the things that you'll notice if you practice mindfulness and you pay attention to anger. One of the interesting things about anger is it always justifies itself. It, it Somehow when the emotion of anger arises, it turns on the story-making part of your mind that makes up the most convincing story why you're totally justified in being angry, why you should be angry, and all the things that you can do about it, and everything else. So, so that is a really good example of uh, a mental state. Anger is a mental state that you really get lost in the storytelling. And if you believe in the storytelling, then you have you've lost all of your defenses against the mental state. Because the story tells you that it's impossible that, that no, no reasonable sane person could be anything but angry under these circumstances. <laughs> so you're, you're convinced and you're, you're stuck with your anger and then the story goes on and on until eventually it gets so elaborate you say, well, wait a minute, now let's skip the part of the story about going out and killing the guy. <laughs> But it's a very convincing, convincing story associated with anger, always. It seems justified. I'll point something out to you that I, I thought of when Michael was mentioning this. It's another one of the parallels between what occurs in meditation and what happens when you try to practice mindfulness in your daily life. Now, when you first begin to meditate, what happens is you, uh, you're, you're either distracted or when you're, when you're able to stay with the meditation object for a little while, you tend to get too engrossed with the meditation object. You tend to get absorbed. 
And when, when your mind is not well trained yet, and you get absorbed into the meditation object, then you have no introspective awareness. Your mindfulness is gone, you're absorbed in the meditation object, so some other thought comes along and grabs you and you're gone. You, don't have, you have no defense. So when you are learning to meditate until you've achieved a high degree of mental stability, it's better not to become too closely absorbed into your meditation object. Because that way you become aware when a thought's come along that's pulled you away and you can refocus your attention. The same thing is true in, uh, in your daily life, is that anytime you become too engrossed in something, you're completely vulnerable. When you become totally, you know, say you are doing something on the computer that requires all of your attention and you become completely engrossed in it, you you don't really have much mindful awareness at that point. So if somebody come along, comes along and says something or you get a phone call at that point, you might react without the mindful awareness that you would have wished that you had. So you have to be aware of this. Sometimes you do have to do things that are going to engross your attention. And what you can do is just try to recognize that and, and be on guard. Say, okay, you know, I'm vulnerable in this time. I'm vulnerable to uh, uh, something happening, some thought arising, some event, whatever, that uh, I'm going to approach without mindful awareness. And hopefully that will, you know, if, if that kind of thought or interruption comes, that intention will trigger you coming into a place of mindful awareness. So much of it is habit. You are a creature of your conditioning. Everything that you are now is a result of your past conditioning. If you want to become a different kind of person, you have to condition yourself to be a different kind of person. So condition yourself to be mindful. Plant the intention to be mindful. And expect the fact that you're going to have the periods when you lose your mindfulness. In meditation, before you've developed continuous introspective awareness, it's intermittent. So you check in. But you can do the same thing even when you're engrossed, when you're involved in something that's quite engrossing, is you can develop the habit of just checking in with yourself. Even though it interrupts what you're doing, it'll only interrupt what you're doing for a second or a few seconds to just check in with what's my mental state? What am I reacting to? You know, where am I? And that creates the habit. Not that anything of great significance is necessarily going to happen each time you check in, because most of the time it isn't. But if you create the habit of checking in, what would happen if we're always checking in? Would that be a of a disturbance to, to because uh, when I meditate, I meditate with a different technique. I'm always aware of, of what's, you know, I train to um, be aware of what's going on. Uh, how, you know, I, you know, I can focus in on certain objects, but then, you know, I'm also having introspective awareness kind of constantly. It's always on because I don't, if I turn it off, you know, and only turn it on occasionally, you mm -hmm. know, 
I mean, not be, to me, I, I don't have a lot of success with, with that. Mm -hmm. Well, what you want to be ultimately is you, you want to have that mindful awareness all the time. That, that's ultimately where you want to get to. Checking in periodically is just it's it's a way of getting there. So, uh, so you do it you do it as much as you need to, uh, until and, and you work towards having more continuous awareness. But obviously, you know, I mean, you you do a kind of work that involves being very involved in what you're doing, right? For periods of time, so the only way that you can remain mindful while doing that kind of very engrossing work is to greatly expand the the power of your mindful awareness. And what you're going to find, though, is uh, that with that expanded power of mindful awareness, you're going to want to devote it more fully to what you're involved in. I mean, you're going to find the the same thing that. You know, the more mindful awareness you have, uh, the more you're going to want to use it for the tasks that you have at hand. And that's quite all right. But if you do cultivate the habit of just checking in, it keeps you from getting lost. It keeps you from that place where you get totally absorbed into your work, and, so, and then you stop it, and then it takes sometimes hours to get back to a place of really being mindful. Instead, you can, you can move in and out of being totally focused on something. Uh, it's, it's a lot like, you know, you enter into a jhana, you're totally focused there, you come out of the jhana and you're mindful again. So, learn to do that. Move in and out as much as you need to. Is, um, in the past when I tried to focus on just one single object and I tried to, you know, try to remember to check in every so often. Um, too often I, I, I forget because I'm so focused on trying to focus on that one, one, one object yes. that I will for easily forget to check in. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's just a matter of practice. If I just, if, if I just you know, train myself to check in, uh, it'll just... It's the intention, it's the practice, and you know, it's the fact that you, you're already coming to a place where you really like being in a state of mindfulness, right? So the more that you experience that and the more that you enjoy being in a state of mindful awareness, the easier it's going to be. You know, your mind is naturally going to, to move that way. So it's, if you just continue practicing the way you are, you know, it's, it's going to keep moving in the right direction. So once you check in, what are we looking for? I mean, sometimes when you check in, the thoughts is already in the handhouse. Well, that's right. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things you're checking in for. If you see if the fox is in the house, then, then, uh, then you're in the, the third of the three reflections that the Buddha described to Rahula. <laughs> because if the, if the guard is not always on, then sometimes by the time we realize it's a little bit sort of, it could be too late. Yeah. And the bad things is going to, you know, undesirable things is going to happen. Yeah. Well, the, the ideal thing is that is that you you check in, and every time you check in, you just become fully present for the moment, and hey, everything's wonderful, and you go back to what you're doing. I mean, that's the ideal way that every check in goes like that. But sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, sometimes you check in, and you found out that you know, the fox is in the hen house, and the barn's on fire, or something. Yeah, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's better you found out then than you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> Much later. So let me hear from some of the others of you. I, I've been talking now to several people who've been doing a lot of mindfulness practice in their daily life. And so for any of you that maybe haven't done so much of this before, I'm glad you get to hear this because this is where you can go. This is where you can get to. And it's not, not that far away and that's not that difficult to uh, attain. But... Yeah, I'd like to hear from you. Like, what do you? How do you feel hearing these things? And uh, what do you think of them? Yes. Can you explain what's a check-in? <laughs> well, checking in is is checking in with where your where your mind is at right now. Uh, you you understood what we were talking about when you get really engrossed in something, and you lose touch with you lose touch with uh, everything else because because you are so engrossed. So checking in is checking in on, on your mental state. You see, if you get really engrossed in doing something, you can slip into it. And what you're doing, you're going to have a problem with. Um, it, you can start slipping into a state of uh, being annoyed or irritated or something like that, which will, left unattended, that will just steadily progress and and, and diminish the quality of what you're doing, right? Make you unhappy. Also leave you in a bad mood afterwards and you might go and you know, yell at somebody or something like that. So it's better that you check in and you realize, oh, I'm starting to let this get to me. And, uh, and then let go of it. Be mindful. I'm oh, sorry. I'm um, just... I'm sorry to interrupt. So if, if we're always, you know, having that uh, uh, introspective awareness, always checking in all the time, do you think that's diverting uh, the focus from some from uh, the main focal observation object? Is it diverting too much resource? And then we're, and then we're not doing another aspect of work that's really important, just focusing on that one single uh, point of concentration. Well, you know, if you're if you're sitting at a desk doing a job, you can afford to do that for a short period of time. If you're in the middle of mortal combat, it would not be a good idea to... <laughs> right? I'm oh, sorry, I don't quite understand. Well, the, it depends on what you're doing, what you're engrossed in. There's some things that you could be engrossed in that it would not be a good idea to interrupt your focus to, you know, to check in, right? But... Um, what I'm talking about is I'm assuming you're doing you're, you're engaged in the kind of activity that you can afford from time to time to check in on your mental state to become fully present to cease being the mindless automaton all of whose mental resources are being devoted to the accomplish of some, accomplishment of some defined task you know. so if you're put it this way uh I use an example that I think won't apply to anybody, so nobody will take it personally. So, uh, imagine you're a brain surgeon. Now, when you're doing brain surgery, you're totally engrossed in what you're doing, and that's the way it should be. 
because otherwise it would be very it would be very bad for the patient. <laughs> but there comes the point, you know, where you say uh, uh, you say to your assistant or whatever it is, to, you know, okay, you take care of this and you stand back and you have you check in at that moment. You come back into a state of mindful awareness. Not necessarily because anything's come up at that moment, but simply to sustain the habit of mindful awareness. Or what will happen, what happens with me is that, is that uh, it feels like waking up. I'll get engrossed in something, like writing. I'll be busy writing. and have gone on for a particular while and It'll be time to take a break, and it's like it's like waking up. Okay, come into the present. Here I am. I'm in my body. I know my own mind, and it's not because there's anything happening that needs to be attended to. It's just you know coming back into this place of of presence of here and now, and of mindful awareness. And I love that feeling of oh, I'm present again. I'm I'm awake. I'm I'm aware. I'm here. Well, we're so engrossed in focusing on a, uh, a single object. It's harder to see uh, how that piece is relevant and how the cause and effect of that piece is, uh, is of relevance. That's why I, I, I don't know if I'm I think you're talking about a, a different thing here. I'm not sure. You're talking about the difference between being very tightly focused and taking a broader view of what's going on. Right, right, right. Okay. Now that's important. That's in terms of whether you're whether you're engrossed in a task or whether you're examining your own mind. It is to is to be able to entertain both kinds of views as seems to be appropriate. In terms of the things that are going on in your own mind, a lot of that stuff is not worth being focused on that closely. It's only by taking the broader view that you can tell what, you know, what you want to to be more aware of. And the things that you want to be more aware of, uh, you know, in, in terms of the practice are skillful versus unskillful thoughts and actions and, and, and verbal formation. Uh, wholesome as opposed to unwholesome mental states. Things like that. You don't need to get involved with all the trivia of what your mind happens to be doing. You just notice, oh, mind's doing this trivia or that trivia, and that's as far as you need to go with it. You know, but a large picture lets you know the different things that are going on in your mind, and then you see something, you, you see some unskillful or unwholesome process that is beginning to unfold in your mind. That's the time to, okay, time for me to focus in on this and take a closer look. But if you're working on some task, you do the same thing anyway. You know, you, you look at it from different perspectives and from different scopes so that you can direct your activities in a, produ- in a productive way. You're doing the same thing when you're, when you're practicing mindful awareness. I'm engrossing something, like I'm, I'm, I'm writing something and somebody distracts me, I'm quite irritated. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's not a very good introspective awareness. Ah, but the important thing is the the really important thing is that you recognize the irritability when it arises. Okay, and 
Let's just get to illustrate what mindful awareness means and what it is. Any of you might be working on something that's important to you and somebody interrupts you and you'll feel irritated. It is not mindful awareness to say to yourself, oh, that's so irritating, you know, I, there was no need at all for you to do that. Uh, and here I was doing this important thing and you came and distracted me with your truth. That's what everybody does. That's not mindful awareness. Mindful awareness is, is you're interrupting, you say, ah, irritation arising. Do I need this irritation? No. <laughs> and you move on in an appropriate way. Um, and, and if your irritation stays, you remain aware of it and you continue to regard it in an appropriate way, to, to be mindful of it until it passes away. But how does it benefit you to distract yourself by checking in? I mean, Michael was giving the example of if you're writing something, and if the creative juices are just flowing, and you're getting along with this, and you have great thoughts, how then you don't benefit you to just you're not, you're, yeah. No, at that point, you're not going to interrupt yourself. I think he was talking about if somebody else interrupted you. And you well, that's right. He's talking about if somebody else does. But yeah. checking in seems to me you're, you're deliberately doing it yourself. Yeah, and I wasn't saying that you would interrupt the creative. You know, I. I I write and there's a creative flow. But there's a point comes where it's appropriate to check in. You finally got the meaning you want expressed, you finish the paragraph, and before you dive into the next one, you can take a moment to just check on where you're at. In fact, that may be the fox is already in the hand. It may be. It may be while I roll the jump. Chances are it won't be. If you've really been if you've really been engrossed in what you're doing, chances are there was no foxes because there was no hen house. Uh, <laughs> the hen house is a collection of mental processes that uh, would feed into unwholesome thoughts and unwholesome activities. So I, I'm not when I'm saying checking in. I'm saying uh, the whole idea of checking in as opposed to continuous mindful awareness is that. Yes, indeed, sometimes there are kinds of activities that require our full, you know, our maximal attention. And so we don't divide our attention into, into the, the doer and the watcher. We're just totally engaged in, in the doing. So those are the occasions where checking in is appropriate, but not a checking in that interrupts the flow of things. Mm -hmm. you know, it's well, would, would the checking in amount to sort of asking yourself, well, how am I doing with this? That it can be. It can be that. It's just. It's just sustaining the habit of coming into presence from time to time. And the reason is that if you don't do that, it, it, we are so subject to conditioning that if you spend two or three hours engrossed in something, you know, say between lunch and the time you quit to go home, working on something a really important project, totally engrossed in it and you haven't been checking in, chances are you're going to get all the way home, complain about dinner, kick the dog, and everything else before you realize, hey, what happened to my mindfulness? If you meditate before you go home. Yeah, if you meditate. <laughs> but that's the point, that you can do the same thing in five seconds, you know, uh, or three seconds, several times during the course of that period of time. And you don't, you don't lose your edge that way. You, I found that it's 
opposite way. And so for practice mindfulness, I would like to check in as much as I can. Yes. However, uh, sometimes forget to check in. Yes, sometimes and, you forget to check in. And, and uh, that is uh, uh, come to the point to say, you know, sometimes frustrate to no. say, how come I forgot to check in? But that's the conditioning part of it. Because what you... Tell me. Do you say, oh, I think I'll remember to check in now. No. You remember to check in. That comes from... Where does it come from? You don't do it. So it's that's what I'm talking about. You condition yourself to remember. And if you don't remember, it's because some other factor has overwhelmed the degree of conditioning that you have. So you condition yourself more strongly so that next time you remember. Because the remembering comes from a subconscious place. Remembering is coming from a place that you don't have direct intentional control over. That you create by, uh, by practice and by repetition and by conditioning yourself. And, and for your question, for what's the benefit for checking? For myself, I observe it's a tremendous benefit checking because when I check in more often, I feel I can see things more clear. If I'm not checking, I just uh, follow my emotion or follow the, the 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 story or follow things, you know, and I got uh, caught on the things instead of. You mean it just makes you feel better? Is that what you're saying? I feel much clearer if I can check in from time to time. If I can check in all the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel that way. She's saying clearer rather than better. It's, it's the aspect of clarity that is important. There. But that feels good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if, you know. So I've been doing some uh, work around the house and replacing the things around the doors, you know, with the nails around. They're very engrossed. I like to and a couple of times I checked in. I don't know what made me think of it, but oh yeah. And what what my, the thought I had was, you know, I it makes me remember to enjoy it. Yeah. You know, it's like you're so engrossed, you don't even remember how fun this is. You know, so you can remind yourself to enjoy what's going on. That is a very important thing. Yes, the mind left to its own devices takes everything too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another good thing about bringing yourself into the pleasant moment. <laughs> yeah. You come into the present moment and you you rejuvenate yourself through, through recognizing what a good place it is to be.